going to ask you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, where we've been in for the last four or five weeks. And uh, I just want to open with a comment, okay? You know, the greatest testimony of faith you could ever have, and all children are dismissed. I guess you took care of that already. I'm kind of slow on the uptake here. Um, but probably the greatest testimony you could ever have is in times of discouragement, in times of fear, in times of doubt, to press through. Press through the discouragement, press through the fear, press through the doubt because of your belief in Christ, your belief in God. Tuesday night on our Bible study, we were going through Romans chapter 4, and uh, I, sh I went ahead, I shared a little bit ahead where it says, Abraham, when he received the promise of God, Abraham considered his own body now as good as dead, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise, he did not waver in unbelief. In hope against hope, he believed. And I shared with everybody who was on Tuesday night Bible study that take a look at those words. Abraham considered his body 99 years old, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, 88, 89, 90. And yet to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. If you're being tried, if you're being tempted, if you're being overwhelmed by circumstances, whether they be physical, whether they be medical, uh, medical, whether they be emotional, my admonition and my cry to you is stay faithful in the Lord. I put these little post-its up in my house, around my desk, in my office. When I get discouraged, and trust me, I do indeed get discouraged. But when I get discouraged, I take a little post-it and I write it and I slap it up. And it says, are you more worthy than Jeremiah? Are you more worthy than Isaiah? Are you more worthy than Ezekiel? Are you more worthy than our Lord Jesus Christ? All of whom encountered discouragements, trials, testings of magnitudes we cannot even imagine to remind myself that this indeed is the life of the believer. The life of the believer is not zippity doodah. The life of the believer is we war, we, we press through, and at times in our faithfulness, in our obedience, when we don't feel like being faithful and we don't feel like being obedient, God commands us to press through and to become obedient to Him. So I want to give you that word this morning, particularly as we go into the Word of God this morning, as we look at Ephesians 6.17. 6.17, we have been in this series of Old Church Arise, and it's funny, as we have been delving into this series, more and more issues have been happening within the church, more and more suffering has been occurring in the church. Think there's a coincidence? We're, 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 we're teaching about how to war against the enemy, how to war against principalities. And more and more circumstances are coming in and against the church. I was telling Janet this morning when we got here early, I'm sick of it. But I'm not going to wimp away. I'm not going to walk away. I'm not going to limp away like, oh, it's me. 
No, I'm going to take a stand, and today you're going to see, we're going to take out the sword of the Spirit, and we're going to do some damage if we have faith in Christ. So we've been in this series, and we've looked at the various components of the armor that has been assembled for us. We know from Ephesians 6.12 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness, against principalities, demonic forces, against world forces. Look at all the things that have happened to the church. This week, one of the pastors that I'm on the international uh, prayer call, one of the pastors from Canada said, for, pray for Pastor James Coates in Canada. James Coates arrested, imprisoned for meeting. You know what happens with Canada. Everything flows south. And oh, by the way, pay attention. A lot of language that's been incorporated in Canada is included in the Equality Act. One of the things that the Democrats have said that they're going to pass, one of the primary things on their agenda. Why? Because there are world forces of darkness, demonic principalities and demons who attach themselves to world leaders to further enact the plans of Satan. Satan wants to see the church destroyed. Here's another bulletin. Satan wants to see you destroyed if you are in Christ. There is no negotiation. There's no making peace with the enemy. That does not happen. So when we talk about when we're coming here in Ephesians chapter 6, let me share something with you. This is life and death. This is vitality. Too many Christians have accepted the victim mentality. No, we got to be warriors. We got to fight the fight. What did the Lord say? What did, what did Paul say to Timothy at the end of his gospel? He said, I have fought the good fight. He didn't say, I lived the good life. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. The admonition to you, believer, today, to me, believer, today, is fight the good fight. We get tired. We get overwhelmed. Sometimes we have to get out of the battle to rest a little bit. But let me tell you, there's no quitting in the Christian life. There's none. And it doesn't matter whether you're 18 or whether you're 81. It does not matter. If you want to follow Christ, it's a hard road you've chosen to follow. But He will see you through. So as we looked in Ephesians chapter 6, what have we seen with regard to the armor? We see the ammunition of Paul in verse 10. Stand strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We're reminded so many times to stand. We see this in verses 11, verses 13, verses 14. We are told to gird our loins in truth or put on that belt of truth to secure ourselves, to wrap the truthfulness of the gospel around us, to stand in that truth. We live in a day and age where truth is no longer objective, but the Word of God is objective, and the Word of God is true, and we can hold to the Word of God. We're told in verse 14 to put on the breastplate 
of righteousness. And I shared with you, if you recall, the breastplate of righteousness protects the vital organs, protects the heart, protects the bowels. And it was thought that the heart being the center of desire and the center of wills and the bowels being the center of emotion and the breastplate of righteousness in Christ's righteousness protects us. We're told in verse 15 to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel, to bind our feet in the gospel truth, to walk in the gospel, to move in the gospel, to live in the gospel. Last week we took a look at two things. We were look, took a look at shield to take, take the shield of faith that protects against the flaming arrows. And I shared with you those flaming arrows being shot at us time and time again by the enemy designed to cause us discouragement and doubt. And last week we also took a look at the helmet of salvation to protect our head, to protect our mind. Today is a day when we're being bombarded with things that are not true, half-truths, half-truth, cultic kind of doctrines and everything that's out there. The believer puts on the helmet of salvation, guards and secures his mind. And today we're going to look at one final piece of our armor, which is the sword of the Spirit. The Roman legionnaires to whom Paul was drawing the analogy um, were not merely assigned to be defensive warriors. It wasn't you sit back there and you take, but what made Roman legionnaires and Roman armies famous is they were famous for their offensive might, their offensive weaponry, and their offensive tactics. They marched against mighty kingdoms and most most of all defeated them and had great success. The last piece of armor that Paul talks about here is one that is used defensively but is also used offensively which is the sword of the spirit and by the way this is one of the most powerful weapons within our arsenal to defeat the enemy and when the sword of spirit is is wielded in the correct manner it smashes the gates of hell and unbelief take a let's take a look at the text ephesians 6 17. I'm just going to reread from verses 13 through 17. He writes, Therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I want to begin first by saying what the sword of the Spirit is not. It is not some other kind of mystical or magical thing. The sword of the Spirit, Paul is very clear. What is it? It is the Word of God. The Word of God. Stay glued to the Word 
of God. Hunger for the Word of God. Desire the Word of God. The psalmist said, Thy Word I hide in my heart that I may not sit against Thee. The sword of the Spirit is the right way to wield the offensive weapon of God. As we take a look at that word sword there, it is, it is uh, the word that describes anything from about a six-inch dagger to a longer sword, but it is not the broad sword that was wielded back then that's designed to gash. This sword is designed to pierce. It's designed to penetrate. It's designed to go through. It's designed to separate. This is the same word, by the way, sword, is the same word here that is used in Matthew where it talks about that uh, in the garden when, Jesus, when they were coming to arrest Jesus that Peter pulled a sword, right? And he cut the ear off the high priest's servant, Malchus. Same exact word that is used there. It is also the same word used in Hebrews 4, 12. A weapon designed for piercing. Hebrews 4.12 reads this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is designed to penetrate. It's designed to pierce. It's designed to puncture. It is designed to wound. But to wound, to bring about the healing balm of the Gospel. The Word of God is penetrating when in the mouth of the man of God. Isaiah 49, 2 says he made my mouth like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a polished arrow. He hid me in his quiver. Listen to the weaponry. The Word of God was in his quiver. The Word of God was penetrating. And this sword can be used to block blows from the advancing enemy. And it's also used as an offensive weapon. We see this when Jesus was attacked by Satan himself in the wilderness at the very start of his ministry while he was fasting 40 days at the beginning of his ministry. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. I want, I want, I want you to see this. How to, how to wield the sword of the Spirit. And nothing better than to go to the Master himself and to learn from the Master. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. It reads as follows, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after He had fasted forty days and forty nights, He then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but of every word that proceed out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, 
He will give His angels charge concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord God to test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Notice this story. This is, this is not fantasy. This is real. This was a real experience. The audacity, the arrogance of Satan to think that he could tempt God incarnate. And if he thinks he could tempt God incarnate, what does he think about you? Take a look. We see Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit. Notice that. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And what was He led there for? To be tempted by the devil. He was led there to be tempted by the devil. And the devil was going to make the most of this opportunity because if he can get Satan, uh, if he can get Jesus to sin, guess what? No more sacrifice. All people of all ages of all time would be condemned to hell. This is the Super Bowl of temptations. Look at verse 3. And the tempter came and said to them, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be bred. Now, stop and think for a moment. Here is Christ in the wilderness. Christ is fasting 40 days, 40 nights. Christ being fully human. Hungry? Thirsty? Maybe aching for a little bit of food? And how did Satan come to tempt? According to his weakness. He didn't come to tempt according to his strength. He came first appealing to the weakness. How did Satan come to attack you and I? According to our weakness. Where we are weak is where you could expect the attack. I know that there are weaknesses inherent in me. I fall victim to certain weaknesses. And trust me when I tell you, it is in those areas that the enemy comes against me. It is in those areas that the enemy tries to move. Some of your weaknesses may be physical frailty. You may be going through physical illness at this time. And the enemy would seek to take advantage of that physical illness to come in and bring discouragement, to bring doubt, to get you to blaspheme your God. Maybe some of your weakness is emotional. Maybe you're emotionally fragile. Maybe you're going through emotional difficulties. The enemy will come into your mind and tempt you in that emotion. And there could be all hosts of other reasons why you may be weak in some areas. But know this, when the enemy comes, he will come to your weakness. And here he comes to our Master, our Lord Jesus Christ in the weakness. And notice his temptation. 
if you are the Son of God. Now, I want to call your attention to those little two letters there. If, that conjunction right there. And I want you to know that when he comes, that conjunction is, it's making an implication of the question for Christ to prove himself. You see this? If you are the Son of God, even within the Son of God, attempting to sow or coerce doubt by that word, if. If you are the Son of God. Remember when there was a, uh, Jesus tells the story, I believe it's in Luke, where the demoniac's father comes to Christ and says, Oh Lord, can you help my son? You know, he's, he's possessed by the devil and he rolls around in the fire and, and then he cuts himself and he gashes himself and, and then he goes back in the fire and he does this and he, he just describes a heartbreaking scene for any father of a child who is possessed by the devil. And people came to help and they could not restrain him. And he had that supernatural demonic strength And he looks at the Lord and he says these words, Lord, if you can, can you help my son? Anybody remember the words that the Lord says to him? If I can, all things are possible for those who believe. Does anybody remember the father's statement after that? He said, Lord, I believe. but help my unbelief. That's the cry of every believer. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Shore me up, build me up in those areas of weakness. Strengthen me. And so Satan, trying to manipulate Christ, says, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And notice how Jesus swings the sword of the Spirit. Verse 4, but Jesus answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Here comes the temptation, and here comes the attack of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Jesus said, it is written. God has said It is established. It is done. Don't give me none of your if. Don't give me none of that whatever you're trying to sell me because the Word of God has said. You know what the Word of God says about temptation? No temptation is common to you, such is common to all men. You hear those words? There's nothing that you're going through that isn't common to all men. No temptation is common to you, such as in common to all men. But God is faithful. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above and beyond what you can stand, but with the temptation will provide a way out. There's a very popular saying today, and it's infiltrated the church. I know God won't give me more than I can handle. You want to bet? You want to bet? Look back on your life. 
If you've been walking with Christ for many years, look back on your life and look at the things that you've been through that you thought you couldn't handle, but by God's grace, He has delivered and pulled you through. When we wield the sword of the Spirit, we wield the Word of God because it is written, it is established that God who spoke the words into creation has spoke these words of truth and it is upon those words of truth that any believer can stand and it is upon those words of truth that we can indeed rebuke the devil and tell him to be gone. Did the devil stop? No, look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. So he took him up to Jerusalem, put him at the very top of the holy temple in Jerusalem. And he said to him, if you were the son of God, throw yourself down. Now he gets clever. Notice what the devil does here. For it is written, oh my goodness, the devil knows his Bible, doesn't he? And he attempts to manipulate and to persuade with perverse logic. And he says to Jesus, quoting from Psalm 91, it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Oh, don't be surprised, Christian, when the enemy comes against you and attempts to tempt you with the word of God, but it's distorted and misled. How he'll take the very words of life and and just manipulate the situation just enough Not to bring you solace, not to bring you comfort, not to bring you joy, but he'll manipulate it just enough to bring about confusion. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. The enemy knows his Bible. Was not that the case in the beginning when Eve first was tempted? And she said, well, the Lord said we're not to eat of that fruit, neither are we to touch it. Eve added to the Word of God, by the way. But what was the refrain? What was the response of the enemy? Half God said? I told you over the last few weeks, Satan's goal against every believer is to cause you to impugn the character of God and to sow discouragement and doubt. Discouragement and doubt. That's his goal. That's what he wants to do. What did he do with Eve? Hath God said? Does the Bible really say? Or does he really mean this? What does he say to you? Oh, it's okay to sin. It's not a big deal. You have forgiveness in Christ. Hey, you. it doesn't matter, man. All that... All that matters is you're justified in Christ. You don't have to walk holy. You don't have to be obedient to Christ. You don't have to submit yourself to Christ. Just, you know, hey, one night going out drinking, no big deal, man. No big deal. 
Oh, you, you can look at those things on the internet. It's okay. You're only human. God understands that. Hey, what's the big deal? You don't need to go to church. You don't need to go to church. That's baloney. That's, that's legalism. You don't need to go to church. The only thing that matters is your heart. And trust me, God knows your heart. He'll manipulate. He's the accuser of the brethren. He tries to coerce and persuade all to weaken us, all to get us alone one-on-one with Him. And then when we're alone one-on-one with Him, we're doomed. Look what He says to Jesus quoting the Word of God. And notice Jesus' response in verse 7. Jesus said, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to test. Again, Jesus, sword of the Spirit, attack with the sword of the Spirit. Let's go back with the sword of the Spirit. It is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Was the devil done? No siree. Now he's pulling out the big guns. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. The prince of the power of this world. The prince of the power of the air. Takes him out and shows him all the kingdoms of all time and all of their glory. And he said, Jesus, all of this is yours. All you got to do is fall down and worship me. Now, we think that's extreme, right? I think everybody here says, there ain't no way I would fall down and worship the devil. But when you sin, when you turn your face on God, when you doubt, in essence, you're doing that. You're saying God is not faithful. His word is not true. And so Satan pulls out the big guns now and he comes for the big one. And what did Jesus say? Then Jesus said, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Perfect illustration of of wielding the sword of the Spirit, of taking the offensive. When the enemy comes upon you, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of God will raise a standard against him. But if you are not rooted and grounded in the Word of God, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. Go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. We saw Jesus do it. And here we we use the sword of the Spirit in an offensive fashion every time we preach, every time we teach, every time we proclaim the Word of God. We are using the sword of the Spirit in an offensive fashion. That's why churches who do not teach Do not preach the gospel. Although you might go and get a very motivational speech, although they may talk to you about things that are relevant to your life, they may tell you how to be a better manager, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife. They may tell you all these other different 
tools that you might lead for life, but if they are not preaching the Word of God, then you will be ill-equipped to encounter the enemy. Turn your Bibles to Acts 2.37. Peter used the Word of God just in a beautiful fashion on Pentecost. Where he preaches the Gospel. This is Peter, the one who betrayed him. Peter, who was defeated. Peter, who encountered Jesus after the resurrection on the beach and three times The Lord asked him, do you agape me? And Peter, all he could say was, Lord, you know I have a fondness for you. But under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he preaches a message. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a perfect illustration. I shared that the sword of the Spirit pierces, it penetrates. And upon hearing the Word of God, thousands that day cried out, What shall we do? And it says they were pierced in the heart. This is what happens when the gospel is preached with authority. This is what happens when the gospel is preached with power. This is what happens when you, uh, you proclaim the gospel to an unregenerate person. The Word of God will go and it will pierce them. And it will pierce them either unto repentance or to unbelief. The the same thing occurs in Acts chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. As Stephen preaches the Word of God. But this time the sword of the Spirit provokes anger in the listeners. Don't be surprised whenever you proclaim the Gospel. Don't be surprised when you testify of the truth of the Gospel that the response from the hearer is an anger and a bitterness and a hatred toward God. And in Acts 7.54, upon hearing Stephen preach, it says, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They were gritting their teeth. They were so angry. The words were so insightful because the sword of the Spirit penetrated and it wounded them in their sin. And they wanted to remain in their sin. And you know the rest of the story, right? They pick up stones and they stone them to death. Are we more worthy than Stephen? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is a powerful weapon that can produce enormously powerful effects. But one thing is sure, this weapon is our primary weapon for attacking the enemy and repelling his attacks. Charles Spurgeon said this, We have no orders to be quiet and take matters easily. No, we are to pray always and watch constantly. The one note that rings from this text is, Take the sword, take the sword, 
take the sword. By the sword of the Spirit, we may be able to drive back the gates of hell, Matthew 16, 18. By the sword of the Spirit, a soul may be saved unto eternal life, John 5, 24. By the sword of the Spirit, a soul may be damned to hell, Matthew 10, 28. By the sword of the Spirit, we cut through the skin without breaking the flesh and pierce the very heart of men, Acts 2.37. By the sword of the Spirit, the thoughts and the intents of men are laid bare, 1 Corinthians 14.25. By the sword of the Spirit, we can cast down every imagination, everything that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bring into captivity every thought. 2 Corinthians 10.5 By the sword of the Spirit, we pull down satanic strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10.4 The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I want to just take you a moment on that word, what it means, that word of God. That word there is the Greek word rhema. And it is a word that uh, it's a promise. It's probably best defined as a spoken word made by a living voice. So it's a spoken word made by a living voice. The Holy Spirit speaks into our heart. It's commonly used in the New Testament and in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, for the Lord speaking His dynamic living Word. So you get this. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The living, active Word of God. It's the same word used in Romans 10.17, which says, So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word, the rhema, the living, active Word, the rhema of Christ. The Word of God. But I want to share something with you, and I think there's a great travesty that's occurring. It is only the Word of God that is apprehended by faith. There are many that are out there that are telling you to you know, shoot verses out as if there's some kind of Christian incantation. If you have not apprehended the Word of God by faith, meaning it is appropriated to you, you understand it, you rest in it, you trust it, then the Word of God is going to be rendered or it's going to be misapplied. I love this statement by Tozer. He says this, I think the first mistake, speaking of the believers, The first mistake is assuming that because it is in the Bible, it is in us. But there is so much truth in the Bible, but people don't apprehend those truths. As Christians, we got to be men and women who apprehend the truth of the Word of God. And if the Word of God is true, and if we embrace the Word of God, if we appropriate the Word of God, if we apprehend the Word of God, then we can apply the Word of God as Jesus did and cause the enemy to go to flight. In order to be effective, the Word of God must be rightly applied. As the Greek word rhema suggests, 
we must apply particular, specific words to uh, specific situations. This is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Now that's not just from an apologetic perspective, but it means we handle the word of God appropriately in all appropriate situations. I love this in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23:29. Speaking of speaking to false prophets and of false prophets, Jeremiah the prophet says this. Is not my word like fire declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters the rock? What does the Word of God do? It's fire, it's piercing, it's searing. It burns, it brings to conviction. But it is also wielded like a hammer and it shatters the rock of unbelief. If rightly applied. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of the sword of the Spirit, says this, The Holy Ghost can make a man feel divine power of the sacred Word in the very center of his being. For battling with spirits of man or with spirits of the infernal kind, there is no weapon so keen, so piercing, so able to divide between joints and marrow, so penetrating as to the thoughts and the intents of men. We preach the Word of God so that people's hearts would be convicted, that the Word would illuminate the sin and point men and women to Christ. That's what we do. The Word of God is powerful. It's able to transform. You heard Brother Mike's testimony. It was able to transform him. Not merely philosophically. He didn't have a a new philosophical outlook on life. But what transformed Heather and Mike was the power of the Word of God as it caused them to be born again. And because the Word of God is so powerful, because the Word of God cuts a path through satanic strongholds, that is the primary place where Satan loves to attack. He'll do anything to discredit and weaken and attack the Word of God. Is it any any small wonder, honestly, is it any small wonder that all cults, the first thing they do is manipulate the Bible? Is it any small wonder that they'll say, well, it's not that, you know, Jesus isn't God. It's not Jesus is God. You know, He is a God. Is it any small wonder that they'll take text and they'll they'll move a comma or they'll change a word and put it out there and give it an entirely new meaning? This is brought about by the powers of darkness and the power of hell. Listen, that's why every believer must have a strong foundation in the Word of God. We need to be able to handle accurately, or as the King James Version says, which I love, rightly divide the Word of truth. That word rightly divide means to cut straight through, to correctly apportion the Word of God. To advance offensively against the gates of hell. 
We must wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, proclaim the gospel of Christ to those in darkness. We must declare the gospel. God calls His church was made up of individual believers to declare the gospel of Christ. The results are up to Him. 1 Peter 2.9, I love this verse. I've probably mentioned it a lot of times over the years here. But you are a, choice, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now let me share something with you. There are many times when the enemy is going to tempt us. And we need to be like Jesus. Have the Word of God ready. Ready where? Ready here. In our heart. We need to be able to apply the Word of God when we're tempted. There's many times when we're going through a trial. And it is the Word of God that becomes a healing bomb to us. When the Word of God is pulled and it, it, it soothes our aching soul. There's many times when we're going through a testing. And it is the Word of God that will stay us steady through that time. There have been many times in my life where the enemy has brought imageries of my past. Thoughts of previous sins repeatedly has come against me and said, you, you, you're going to stand up there and preach? What if I brought all your old boys in here and, and told the church about everything we used to do together? And don't be deceived. Many times I shrink under that pressure until I'm reminded through the Holy Spirit of the Word of God sown in my heart. And immediately I say out loud, the Word of God if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. He cleansed me from all sins, Satan. He didn't cleanse me from some sins. He didn't cleanse me from the nice sins. He cleansed me from all sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm cleansed. I'm clean. My justice was put on Christ. He paid that. And I default and I entrust myself completely and wholly to Christ. And I rest in His finished work at Calvary. For when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not according to deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit with which uh, he poured out upon us lavishly through Jesus Christ. And I quote Titus 3, 4, 7. And I stand on the Word of God. And I quote John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he... he, he that God so loved the world that... Oh, I'm trying. Help me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For he who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only Son of God. 
And more and more and more I could quote Isaiah 26.10 when the Spirit... When the, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of God raises a standard against him. And you know what happens? Just like what happened with Jesus in the wilderness. Be gone! And he leaves. Folks, let me share something with you. This isn't ethereal stuff. Can we agree to that? This isn't theoretical. You don't need to come up here now and get a special touch from pastor. Oh Lord, give me that touch so that I could resist the devil. You don't need that. You need this. You need to dive into the Word of God. You need to apprehend it by faith and then stand committed upon the Word of God. Lord, I will not waver. Lord, I will not budge. Satan, you're going to have to kill me, and even if you kill me, I won. Pick your poison. I don't think many Christians believe this, honestly. I, I, I really do I know that many of you are being assaulted right at this very minute. I know that. My heart aches. And every day I'm praying for you. And I'm not tooting my horn here. I'm asking God to intercede. I'm asking God to break through in your lives. But we must not forsake Him. We must stand firm. Charles Spurgeon made this statement, by this the elect of God are known. Notice what he says here, by this the elect of God are known, that they love the Word of God. And they have a reverence for it. And discern between it and the words of man. What will you do? Will you wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to proclaim Christ's excellencies and how He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light? Will you study the Word of God to show yourself to prove to God as a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth? Will you cherish the Word of God? And cling to it for your vital spiritual life. Will you entrust yourself completely and wholly to God's Word? Listen, the day of negligent, negligent Christianity is over. The day of coming to church one Sunday is over. When the persecution comes, that faith will not cause you to stand. I, I, I want to I keep reiterating this point because the day is here. It will not cause you to stand. I believe it's Daniel 11.32 that says, The people who know their God will display strength and do great deeds. They'll do mighty exploits. Will you hide the Word of God in your heart that you may not sin against thee? I agree with Tosa. Because the Bible speaks of a truth doesn't mean that it is in us. It is only there if it is apprehended by faith. And that can only occur if one is in Christ.
And if you're not in Christ, I, I don't say this condescendingly, nor do I say this mockingly, but good luck. Because it's only Jesus Christ that is my shield, my fortress. The name of the Lord is a high tower. The righteous run in and they are safe. When I get overwhelmed by the enemy, I declare, Lord, you are my shield. You are my fortress. You are my rock. You are my deliverer. You are the God in whom I trust. If you don't know that, it's time for you to repent and come to faith in Christ. Come to faith in Christ. What else could you be waiting for? Repent. Turn from your sin. And turn to Christ. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Mighty Father, we thank you. And we praise you. We bless your name. No, God, I pray that there wouldn't be one person that looks at me or any other person in this church thinking we got it all together. No, Lord, my heart is that I and every other person in this church would decrease and that Christ would increase. But, oh, God, I pray that you would put our faith, our confidence, and our trust in your word. Father, I pray that you would raise up from this church, oh God, a mighty army. People who love Jesus. People who follow Jesus. People who can't get enough of your word, oh God. People that stand strong in the, in the Lord and in the strength of His might. People that are armored and ready to enter the battle. People, Lord, who will swing the sword of spirit and rightly divide the Word of God and, Lord, press against the gates of hell. That Your name would be glorified, O God. And You would be magnified. If there's anybody here to whom your spirit is speaking to right now, we pray that you would bring them, up, bring them unto repentance, Lord. That we would be able to share the gospel with them. Father, for we know that the fields are white with harvests. May we be obedient. And continue to proclaim the gospel, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.